morning. We are, go- we are going to be doing a series uh, out of the book of Nehemiah, which is a book in the Old Testament of our, of our scriptures that you may or may not be familiar with, that will take us through the fall all the way to Advent season, which begins the last weekend of, of November. So if you have your worship folder, there's an insert in that worship folder that has the scripture passage on one side and then a sermon outline on the other side so that you can follow along as we come to the scriptures together um, to hear what God has to say to us as his people gathered before him. So come with me to Nehemiah chapter 1 verses 1 through 11 and let's uh, read together the word of God from this great book in the Old Testament. Nehemiah 1, the words of Nehemiah the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these things, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me to keep my commandments and do them, though you are though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is God's word. Now, if you're not if you're not very familiar with the scriptures, and maybe if you're new to church this morning, you might think, I have no idea what he just read. Uh, We were, we are, we homeschool our kids and and we're teaching my eight-year-old cursive and my five-year-old who's coming behind him was walking around the house the other day and he said, Daddy, I said, Isaac, what are you doing? I'm talking in cursive, Daddy. And we may read that passage together this morning, and it may look like to you. And yet we find here in verse 2 of this chapter, Nehemiah says, I was in Susa, the capital. And so we have to ask an important question before we can even really get to this passage. And that is this, what is a Jew, Nehemiah, doing in Susa, the capital of Persia? In other words, what is the story behind the story of this man, Nehemiah? And we've got to answer that question so that when we come to this text, It doesn't sound like cursive that we can't figure out or understand. So what is the story that makes sense of Nehemiah's story? And it's a story that goes all the way back to the beginning of of the revelation of our scriptures where we believe in a God who created the heavens and the earth good. 
and everything that he made was good, and yet it did not stay good for very long because sin and evil entered the world and ruined all that God had made. And yet, the God we claim to serve was not a God who was willing to let his creation languish in that state, but immediately on the heels of sin's ruin, he declared his intention to come and to make things right and to bring salvation and to take the world back to where he originally created it in all of its goodness and glory. And the story of our scriptures is the story of God coming into time and space, using a people, using those that he calls his servants to come and to see this great work of salvation accomplished in this place, on this earth, among the people that populate the pages of the scriptures. And God's plan from the very beginning has always been that his people would live in his land. That way in the very beginning in the book of Genesis, in the, in the first chapters of the book of Genesis, the story unfolds and it begins with a man and a woman in a garden, garden walking with God. That's just plain strange. But even in that picture, you see that God's intention from the very beginning has always been that his salvation, his purposes of salvation for the world would come through the reality of his people in his land. And what we see is, as the scripture unfolds, God brings the nation of Israel, who he claims as his people, into the promised land. He sets Jerusalem up as the capital of the entire world, the place where his name would dwell, he says here in chapter, in verse 9. It's the place where God's glory would come and all the nations of the earth could rally to Jerusalem to worship him, God's people in his land. And that was going to be the method through which he brought his healing and his power and his salvation the world and yet what we know from the bible as it tells the story is that the people once they had been established by god sinned against him they did not act according to his purpose they did not act at his people they took up a selfish agenda and they lived only for themselves and not for him and so in punishing their sins he has scattered them now to all the corners of the earth and so we find nehemiah in susa the capital of persia you didn't know you were going to get a historical lesson in church this morning. But here's how it goes. Historical records show that Jerusalem was conquered by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And only a handful of Jews were left. Everyone else was taken back to Babylon. But here's what happened. is Immediately after 586, the Babylonians are conquered by the Persians. And the Persians take control. And so Nehemiah is here in the capital of Persia. But even as God sends his people away into exile to punish them, because he's a God of incredible grace, he makes incredible promises to them. And he says, I'm sending you out of this land to punish you from your sins. But in 70 years, in just a little while, I'm going to come and I'm going to find you and I'm going to make it right again. And I'm going to bring you back and we're going to start all over. And it's finally going to be the way it was supposed to be from the very beginning. He says, 70 years and I'm going to come and get you. And what we learn from the scriptures is that that is exactly what happened about 50 years after this. And I think I have a slide that has a little timeline on it. But about 50 years after Jerusalem falls and all of this destruction that we read about here happens, the Babylonians are defeated by the Persians in 539. And in 538, some of the Jews go back to Jerusalem under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel, and they rebuild the temple of God there. 50 years later, if you know the story in the scripture, 485 B.C., Esther, for such a time as this, all of that becomes queen and all of the events around Esther's reign happen 30 years after Esther shows up on the scene. Around 458 B.C., 
a man named Ezra goes back to Jerusalem and calls for spiritual reformation and repentance. And then, to catch you up, 14 years later, around 445 B.C., Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. But that's where we find ourselves. Right in the midst of that story. But what I want to say to you this morning is that I think it is true that something else is being revealed to us here in this story, though it may, may appear a little more subtle than what I've just said. Nehemiah weeps for Jerusalem because the city itself, if you look in verse 9, the city itself is the place that God has chosen to make his name dwell. And what that, what that just that little phrase there means is that Jerusalem is the place where God's temple was. It was the city where God's glory was supposed to be manifest for all of the nations to see. That God would dwell among his people in his land. His people in his land. Just like way back in the book of Genesis. And because of all of that, the people of God had begun to have a love affair with the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah loves Jerusalem. And though he was born in a foreign country, Jerusalem is Nehemiah's city. And I think this translates into something very concrete for us. Winter Haven is my city. I was born here, I was raised here, I've lived here my entire life except for four years at Florida State and one year in Orlando. It's the place where I long to see God come and make things right. And one, one of the interesting things that I've discovered as I've interviewed people about Winter Haven is when I see somebody that I, I I'm, this is my alma mater, class of 93, go Devils, you know, whatever that is. If we can say that in church. But um, When I find people, when I come across people that I graduated high school with, and I ask them, you know, it's the immediate question, you know, so, so you still, you're, you're still in Winter Haven. And what is fascinating to me is when we have this conversation, the people I'm talking about feel the immediate need to apologize. Like you're not legitimate if you live here. If you were really something, you'd be in New York City or, or someplace. And so I'm on a personal mission. Please join me. I'm on a personal mission to give people permission to love the city of Winter Haven. It's my city. It's our city. And what we're going to learn in these, these, this series that we're going to take a look at here in the book of Nehemiah is what it looks like to have a city on our heart. Nehemiah City, Jerusalem, our city, Winter Haven. And this morning in particular, we're going to see that a crucial part of that is to live with a heart that is broken over the devastation that sin can cause, to have a broken heart. For the city. So if you come with me to this passage this morning, you'll, you'll see we're going to talk about what it means to have a broken heart for the city, and we're going to see three things. First, what is it? What is it to have a broken heart for the city? Secondly, how do you get a broken heart for your city? And then thirdly, how do you know you've got it? So what is it? How do you get it? And how do you know that you've got it? Those are the three points that are in your outline. So let's start right here with Nehemiah brokenhearted. What does it look like to have a broken heart? For the city. As the book begins, we just read a minute ago, a convoy comes from Susa to Susa from Jerusalem, and Nehemiah asks about Jerusalem, and here's the report he gets. The Jews are in great trouble and shame, the walls are broken down, and the gates are destroyed. Now go back there at the beginning of that chapter, and you'll see Nehemiah's emotional reaction to this. I want you to think for a minute. It's been 140 years since Jerusalem fell. 140 years, and the city is still in ruins. The walls are still broken down. And yet, it's a project, completing the walls is a project that Nehemiah is going to do in 52 days. It's been 140 years, he's going to get it done in 52 days. What in the world accounts for, how does that make that possible? What, how, what accounts for that? And what we're going to see is it's because Nehemiah is grieved by a deep sadness. 
and his sadness compels him to act. Look at, again at the description of verse 4. If you'll go there. As soon as I heard these words, Nehemiah writes, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. Now, when's the last time that happened to you? It's a strange emotional reaction, isn't it? But I want to say I believe it's an appropriate and a godly response. It's not an overreaction. It's not melodrama. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, God looks at all the evil that has come into the world and how desperately wicked man's heart has become. And Moses writes that it grieved God to his heart. Literally, God looked upon sin and evil in the world and it broke his heart. Sin and evil break God's heart because they're not a part of his original design. And so I would say to us this morning, therefore, to see and experience the ruin of sin and not and be unmoved is sin. You hear that? To see and to experience the ruin of sin and to be unmoved is sin. Paul Miller, a friend of ours who wrote a, a discipleship curriculum, the person of Jesus study has a statement in that study where he says, he says, we can't feel compassion in a world where evil exists without it leading either into joy or sadness. Let me say it again. Paul Miller says, we can't feel compassion in a world where evil exists without it leading us either into joy or sadness. Let me translate that for you. If we're going to love, we're going to be sad. If you're going to love, you're going to be sad. We live in a fallen, broken world full of pain and devastation and despair. The world is not as it should be. Evil reigns. Families fight and are split wide open. Friends fail us. Our children get cancer. What's the appropriate response? A broken heart. And so I'd ask you this morning as we come and we just see Nehemiah in his sadness and brokenheartedness, what makes you cry? I thought I was going to cry at a football game yesterday, but my Seminoles pulled it out. What makes you cry? Does the sin in our city make you cry? Do the homeless people wandering the streets make you cry? There are over 80,000 people in the city of Winter Haven who do not go to church, and who know very little about Jesus, does that make you sad? What makes you cry? Because here's what I want you to understand. Our culture is ill-equipped to train us in good sadness because the general assumption is avoid it like the plague. Don't let sadness linger. Happy up. Don't stay sad. Do whatever you have to do to get away from that as fast as you possibly can. And I have a story to illustrate what I mean by that. I, before I was, did this, what I'm doing now, um, I, got the, I got the opportunity to travel a bunch to places like India and Russia and some other places. And I remember on one trip in India, uh, it, I would like to say it was, we were staying in the bad part of town, but there is no such thing as a bad part of town because every part of town is the bad part of town. But what you see in India is in the middle of the just slum like you can't possibly imagine, out of that thing will shoot up these 30-story fancy hotels designed for Western tourists. And we were staying in one of those places, and you can call me to repent later if I need to, and that, you know, we can talk about that. But we were staying in a pretty nice place, uh, literally 20, you know, 20-foot walls, and you, you come in and marble everywhere and, and all this kind of stuff. And I remember, I, you know, you literally have to drive through and about run over people who have nothing 
who are begging for money, who will tackle you if you go outside and, and take whatever you have and just utter devastation and poverty. And you drive through the gates and here you are in this beautiful, immaculate place and the whole thing's designed to try to help you not think about what's outside on the other side of the wall. And I'm sitting down in the lobby. I'm in India, right? You with me? I'm in India. You know that place on the other side of the world? And, we're, and I'm sitting down there and I'm just... I'm just I, God, you know, God moved on me, and I, I was overwhelmed, and I looked over in the corner, and over in the corner is a little man on a keyboard like that, and I'm just thinking, this is so bizarre that we just are in here, and it's like none of that's out there, and then my man in the corner on the keyboard breaks out into, Mama, don't let your baby grow up to be cowboys. And I thought, this is insane. The next thought was, this is my life. Everything in my life. It's an apt parable of the way we live. We work hard to create a false reality where we can just pretend that all that stuff just doesn't exist out there and we can go on with our lives. And the problem with living that way, with a commitment to avoiding sadness at all costs, is that it leaves us with little capacity to love because it betrays our deep selfishness. Now, so I want you to just think through the relationships you're invested in. And let me ask you, what's the goal of that relationship? Husbands, think about your wives. Wives, think about your husbands. Moms, think about your kids. Think about your neighbors. The relationships you're invested in, what is the goal? You see, if the goal of that relationship is your personal happiness and comfort, then you're going to avoid sadness at all costs. You'll only be in it for you. And that means as soon as it gets hard or your feelings get hurt or somebody makes you mad, then you're out. But if the goal is love, if you can say of those relationships, you know, I'm really going to love my, this person. I'm going to put my love on this person. Then the expectation has to be different. You're going to have to embrace heartache and disappointment because that's part of what love demands. And what we have to wrestle with right at the beginning of Nehemiah here, at the very beginning of this book, is how costly it is to love. The cost of having a city on our hearts. It's costly to love. C.S. Lewis, a great Christian philosopher, theologian, writer, has this incredible quote, and I think it's on the screen behind me, where he says, there's no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to be sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness, but in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. And then this phrase, the only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. And what an amazing description of the way we live our lives, wrapping our hearts up in little hobbies and little luxuries until we are unfeeling, avoiding all inconveniences, all entanglements. I love that word, perturbations. All inconvenience, locking our hearts up in a coffin of selfishness, and it just leaves us unmoved and unaffected. But why do we do that? Why do we do that? Why do we live that way? And it's exactly because of what Lewis says, it's because love is full of danger and perturbation. And here's the undeniable fact. Lewis is right. 
there's a direct connection between sadness and love. The more you open yourself up to the possibility of love, the more vulnerable you are to sadness. And I believe you can measure the sincerity of the force of your love by the depth and the intensity of your sadness. The two go together. And what we learn from Nehemiah and from Jesus's life is that sadness is the very thing that is meant to ignite a heart of love. Nehemiah saw the devastation of Jerusalem and it made him sad and his sadness propelled him to the action. The problem is we are we are discipled by our culture to short circuit the problem before it can have any effect. We can't run away from it. I want to tell you, we can't run away from sadness if we're going to love this city. We've got to learn how to embrace it, how to live with it, how to move towards it. And that takes incredible courage. So if that's what it means to have a broken heart, then how in the world do you get one? Where do you go? How do you find the courage to love and to, and to, and to embrace the possibility of sadness? And here's the issue, and I want to make it personal if I can. How, what, let me say it this way. When you feel vulnerable in a relationship, what do you do? In that moment, when you feel vulnerable, what do you do? And I have to ask myself, can I make myself vulnerable to Ashley, my wife? Can I, can I risk a broken heart to love that person? Will I endanger myself? Will I inconvenience myself? Or do I just keep my heart locked up in a coffin of selfishness? And I, and I just have to go back and ask, why can't I risk being brokenhearted by you? Why can't I risk you just taking my heart and shattering it in pieces? And, and here's really what I think is going on here. It's because I'm looking for something. In that relationship, I'm looking for a happiness or a fulfillment or a completion or a sense of identity or worth in that relationship that can only be found in a relationship with Jesus. And it happens all the time. In relationships between husbands and wives and parents and their children and among friends, we make an idol out of the other person or the way that person makes us feel about ourselves. And in that relationship, we go looking for the love and the affection that only Jesus can give. We go looking to get our emotional needs met in those relationships. We come into those relationships emotionally needy rather than emotionally wealthy. And so here's the question we've got to deal with. And here's what I've got to deal with. If I relate to you that way, am I loving you or am I really loving me? See, it's back to selfishness and self-interest. And that's the brilliance of what C.S. Lewis was saying. We lock our hearts up in coffins of selfishness because we sense the danger. We're vulnerable and we feel insecure. And so here's how you know. Here's how you know whether that's true of you. Can you be sad? Can the person hurt you and you love them still? Can you face their rejection and push, push past it to be kind and generous? And if the answer is no, then I just want to ask you lovingly, is it really love? Or is it just selfishness masked in something else? This is, as uncomfortable as this is, this is exactly what we're called to. It's what a husband is called towards his wife. It's what we are called to our city, to love to our own hurt. But how does that happen? Where do you get the courage to love like that? And there's only one way. You've got to come in contact with a love that is beyond you, a love that is foreign to you, a love that is sourced outside of you. We've got to find a joy that is unshakable. We have to experience a security and an emotional wealth so powerful that it quiets our hearts before the dangers and perturbations of love. And that's what we believe it's going to take. And that's exactly what we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, love your enemies, not love those who love you back. He says, if you love those who love you back, what good's that? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And I really don't like him for saying those things. But what's he saying? 
He's saying that he has so loved us and so provided for us that we can love, not for the warm fuzzies we get in return, but even to our own hurt. Because in the gospel, in the gospel of Jesus, we are already so loved and so emotionally wealthy, we don't need love in return. We just need to find a place to put all that God is putting into us. Now, if you're here this morning and you find yourself just stony-hearted, how does your heart get melted? In other words, if, you, if you're here this morning and you say, you know, I, I get what you're saying to me, but I just still, I look and I find in my heart, I'm just so stony-hearted and I'm just so unmoved even by the brokenness that I see right around me. How in the world do you get your heart unbroken? How does your heart get melted? And here's what I think all of us have heard in church over and over again all of our lives. See the Nehemiah? See how Nehemiah has a broken heart for his city? Now go, go, go get busy. Have a broken heart for the city. Good luck. And that doesn't work. That does not work. So how do you and I get our hearts melted? We have to stare at the one who loved us even though it cost him everything. We have to come together this morning and we have to stare at the one who wept and mourned and fasted and prayed over your sin and my sin and our ruin and who stepped out of heaven to rescue us. You see, Nehemiah weeping over Jerusalem is just a picture of the one who would come weeping and bringing salvation and deliverance for his people, Jesus Christ. If you look back at your call to worship, there's a scene there that we, came, we picked out from the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, this city that Nehemiah is weeping over, and he's being greeted by the crowds on the road as a king, as the long-awaited Messiah. They throw their garments on the ground in front of him, and they wave palm branches, and they sing his praises. They're cheering him. They're lauding him. They're, they're, they're acknowledging him. They're worshiping him. And in nearly every movie or children's Bible you read, Jesus is on the donkey and he's beaming. And if I was him in that moment, I'll be honest, um, and some of you know me well enough, man, I would have the princess wave going full force. You could just see him. And it's wrong. If ever there was a moment when he would be justified in soaking in their admiration and their acknowledgement, it was this moment. After all, he says, I mean, this blows my mind. He's, they, say, they say, quiet your disciples. And he says, if they don't sing, the rocks will. And yet, as Luke records the scene, Jesus is not smiling. He's not waving at the crown. Do you see what he's doing? Weeping. You see, at the moment when you and I would be most tempted to be self-absorbed, Jesus was completely absent of self-regard. He thought only about Jerusalem and the judgment that was coming because of their sin, and he wept. His heart was broken. Isaiah the prophet had foretold that he would be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Literally, Jesus was to know pain and sorrow and sadness. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because he's the very embodiment of love, the Scripture teaches us. He is the one who loved truer than any has ever loved before. So wouldn't it make sense that he would be the one that experienced sadness more and more and more force and intensity than anyone had ever experienced before him. And as he's going to the cross, you read in the Gospels over and over again that he's greatly troubled. And even one one place in the Gospels, one of the Gospel writers says he was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus said, I am so sad. My heart is literally about to rip in two. Now think about that. Think about the fact that from all eternity, Jesus knew only love and joy and satisfaction in the fellowship of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He was God, and, he, and from all eternity, he knew only love and joy and satisfaction in the fellowship of the Trinity, and yet he was willing to come to earth 
to live with a broken heart, to face rejection from those he loved, to be a man of sorrows, that we might know the infinite joy of being loved by God. On the cross, he took our sin upon himself and faced the rejection and wrath of his father so that we might know acceptance and love and joy. And that's the gospel. I have it in a sentence form this way. In order for us to experience and be acquainted with love, Jesus had to acquaint himself with sadness. He had to face his father's rejection, and he did for love of you and me. And here's what that does. Here's what we believe the gospel does. No one's ever loved us like that. No one's capable of loving us like that. No one's ever done anything for us like that. His love, this love of the one who would come from heaven to earth is the love we go looking for in every other relationship. And only in Jesus can we find the love and the joy and the security that we need to love to our own hurt. To love because we're convinced of his love for us, a love that's greater than any other. And if we could see him, if we could see him in Nehemiah's sadness, if we could see him weeping over us, even in our rebellion and sin, it would melt our hearts. If we could see him brokenhearted, coming into Jerusalem to work salvation and deliverance, not thinking about himself, but having his heart ripped in two, then we would become people capable of doing the same. Because you see, the one who wept over his city can put his spirit into our hearts. He can take our cold, dead hearts and by his spirit break them into a million pieces and put them back together again. He can put his love on us and give his love to us as we love our city. And that's cry out for him to do that this morning. You see, so that is what a broken heart is. And that's how you get it. But there's a third thing I want us to see as we come uh, to the end this morning. And that's this. How do you know? So if that's what a broken heart is, and if, if you have to stare at him and beg for mercy that Jesus would give you his heart broken for your city, if that's, what it, if that's how you get it, then how do you know? How do you know if you're living with a broken heart? How do you know whether you're living with these gospel dynamics we've talked about? Whether you're living in gospel security and not selfishness? How do you know you're living not needing from all these other relationships, but that you can really go into those things because you've already had your needs met in Jesus? How do you know that? And there's two things. There's the right posture and there's the right practice. So look there with me and I want to just say the right posture. And here's the way I want to say this this morning to you. And it's just this, that the truest test, you know you have a broken heart for your city. Here's the truest test. It's whether we see ourselves as part of the problem or as part of the solution. If you look in the middle of Nehemiah's prayer, there's an astonishing thing that happens. Uh, verse 7, when he prays, he doesn't say, God, Jerusalem is in ruins. It can't be God's fault because that's the place where his name dwells. It must be that, 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 that the people have sinned. But look what he does. Here's what blows my mind. Nehemiah doesn't say, God, they've sinned. Forgive them. Look, God, look at what they've done there in Jerusalem. Please forgive them. You know, he prays, God, we've sinned. Forgive us. And that's significant. I want you to look. Will you see with me here in verses 6 and 7? Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you today. For the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Look at this. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Nehemiah says, Jerusalem is in ruins. My fault. Because of my sin, I've acted corruptly. And so I'd say to us, can we get in the car this afternoon and drive through Eloise 
or just a little north of here and see the devastation and the ruin and the poverty and the brokenness? And can you say, this is my fault. I've done this. And will that change the way we live? The decisions that we make about what kinds of cars to drive and where to live and all those things. You see, we have to own the brokenness and despair of our city. You see, Nehemiah doesn't see himself as part of the solution. He sees himself as part of the problem, and that creates the right posture for his mission. Six times in this passage, Nehemiah refers to himself as a servant. He uses the word servant to describe himself or Israel. And what you need to know about Nehemiah is he's a man of incredible influence. He's going to prove to be a great leader. He's a guy that can really get things done, and eventually he's going to be the governor of the territory. He'd make a great church planter, I'm sure. But Nehemiah understands something very important. He understands that he's just a small part in a much larger work of what God is doing to bring salvation. But it's not his work. It's not his agenda. It's not his solution. He understands it doesn't all depend upon him. He's not the Savior. But he knows the Savior. He's just a servant. Who, who is, he's just a servant in as much need of being saved as the people he's called to. Oh, what a gift that would be to our city. To not be people who have all the answers. Who can point our fingers and tell everybody what they're doing wrong. But to say, man, I, I need that just as much as you do. See, it creates the right posture. And then look what the posture does. The right posture leads to the right practice. Um, Nehemiah sees himself as part of the problem. He understands he's really powerless to do anything about the conditions in Jerusalem. And that creates the right practice. Um, here's what I love. I learned so much about myself here. Nehemiah is a man of action. We're going to see that. And that's what makes what he does here more startling. Jerusalem is defenseless and vulnerable to attack, but notice he doesn't call for a meeting. He doesn't create an Excel spreadsheet, which is my favorite thing in the world to do. My hope is in Excel. He doesn't form a project plan. What does he do? Praise. He takes his overwhelming sadness and he brings it up into God's largest over and over again, nine times in this book. He's going to pray. And prayer has to be, prayer has always for me been an assumption or an afterthought. I've always, I've always thought of it's what you do to intro the real, real work or what you do to wrap it up. I've never seen prayer as the work, uh, as the way to really get things done. And I've never considered prayer the job assignment. And that's got to change in me. It's got to change in you. Steve Childers, professor of mine at RTS, says all the time, prayer is the mysterious means that God has chosen through which he releases the transforming power of the gospel. We've got to become a praying people. We've got to give our best time and resources and efforts to prayer. And so let me just ask you, if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, do you have a strategy for becoming a man or woman of prayer? And I confess it's so hard for me. And I ask you to join me right there in repenting. Will we pray? Will we take our broken heart? Will we allow it to be broken? And then will we take all that is broken inside of us and lift it up to the only one we know who has the power and the authority to bring healing and salvation. You see, if your first impulse is to get busy, my first impulse is to get busy, we've still got it wrong. We think it depends upon us. But if our first impulse is prayer, then we're getting somewhere. So how do you know if you've got a broken heart for the city? If you're living, if you're living with gospel, humility, and security, and here's the answer, do you pray? But here's the reality, that in prayer, when I'm praying, I'm powerless, I'm weak. I'm, I'm the one who needs to be saved. And in prayer, I'm reaching out to the only one who can do what needs to be done. But it's not me. It's not us. Jesus weeps over Winter Haven. Isn't that great? 
And if you're not from Winter Haven, he weeps over your city too. He weeps over broken marriages and relationships. So who better to call on to come and help? I pray this morning you'll gaze upon him weeping over you. And I pray that that, that, that view of him, that, that the glimpse of Jesus and all of his glory would break your heart. That you would let it break your heart. And that you would turn that broken heart into a plan that begins with prayer. But that leads to going out into our city and taking sadness and turning it into joy and taking our fingers and wiping away the tears that exist in our city that he might be glorified in all we do. So let's pray together this morning. Jesus, thank you um, that you did not remain unconcerned and unmoved by the sin and the ruin and the despair that gripped so many of our lives, but that it moved you so deeply that you left your Father's glory. You left the sound of angels' praise. You left all that was yours in heaven to come and to live among us, to suffer and to die for us, that your heart broke in two because it was the only way that you could, you could show to us and, and have us experience the joy that can be now ours in a relationship with you and your Father through the Spirit. So Jesus, come and form us as your people who live brokenhearted for their city, a people who give their lives to the practice of prayer, that you might be glorified in all that we say and do. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.